You're listening to One Decision, the podcast that looks at the choices made that shape our world. I'm your host, Julia McFarlane. US officials have made a dramatic escalation over the case of Evan Gershkovich, the Wall Street Journal correspondent who's been held in Russia, arrested on charges of espionage, something that's not happened since the Cold War. Washington moved to designate him as wrongfully detained. Essentially, they're now classing him as a hostage. I think it sends a a very strong message to people around the world to uh, beware of even setting foot there, lest they be arbitrarily detained. That was Secretary of State Tony Blinken speaking there. Gershkovich and other Western journalists have found it increasingly difficult to cover the Russian beat since Putin's reinvasion of Ukraine last February. But the risks and difficulties aside, until now it's been far harder for many local Russian journalists to bring factual information to their fellow citizens. Many independent outlets have now essentially shuttered following a crackdown on press freedom and freedom of expression by the Russian authorities. Putin is trying to tighten his grip domestically as he struggles to control the narrative of his beleaguered war efforts over in Ukraine. By many accounts from the people who know him, his family and friends, Evan Gashkovich, who is of Russian heritage, loved the country that he covered. He did what he did to try and bring nuance and context to a much misunderstood part of the world. We spoke to one of his good friends, New York Times Moscow correspondent Valerie Hopkins, about Putin's war on journalism and getting the truth out in Russia. Well, certainly, I mean, there's been a a very repressive environment uh, in Russia for many years now, one that kind of has become increasingly repressive. And and that process accelerated, of course, after Russia invaded Ukraine. It does feel quite often like there are just new milestones that, that can become a new normal. One of the things I discussed during a recent conversation with Evan was the news that uh, a man riding on the Moscow metro actually was arrested after the person sitting next to him saw content on his phone that was deemed to defame the Russian armed forces. So, you know, this is the type of environment in which we Moscow correspondents have been operating in recently. You know, I have to say that I've been incredibly astonished by the number of brave people who continue to remain in Russia, uh, continue, you know, have found ways to adapt. I mean, pretty much all serious media outlets have gone into exile and are working from abroad. But there are people inside Russia who still contribute to them, uh, you know, whether that's by sending photos or information. Uh, and And it's incredibly brave and it's incredibly important because it's already made access to information so much harder to get. The government also changed the laws about access to the information. I think, you know, it's classified an unprecedented number of its budget lines. Many of the debates in parliament are no longer being, the minutes are no longer being released in full. It's becoming harder and harder to access information. It's becoming harder and harder to to disseminate it as well. Absolutely. And I think that's why Evan felt so strongly about the importance of being there. You know, there are incredible Russian journalists, but because so many of them had to flee, uh, there there was a feeling that foreign journalists became a much more important source of information as people, you know, who we thought uh, could operate under relative safety. And, you know, as long as they had their accreditation. So it's, it's really a tragedy, I think, um, 
not only for, for the world and for the people who need to be informed, but also for Russia, uh, which will become more and more misunderstood. But, but I, it, it certainly speaks to the fear that the Kremlin has about any public displays of dissent. But I think that's largely due to the fear that, you know, right now, officially 20% of Russians, one in five, oppose the war, which is a very big number. And I think there's a fear that as the economy continues to struggle, as more and more caskets return home, that the message against the war would actually become more popular and, and become a big problem for the Kremlin. When did you first cross paths with Evan? Did you first meet him in Russia or or back in the States? I met Evan uh, shortly after I moved to Moscow, which was in 2021. He had been around for much longer. And I remember congratulating him when he started at the Wall Street Journal, which you know, is basically his dream job and one that he was working towards for his whole career, I would say, and, and one that he was so excited about. And we knew each other socially then, but but we did get close only after we both decided to return last summer. Many Russian journalists, uh, or sorry, many journalists had, most foreign journalists had left Russia, uh, including all of my colleagues. But I, I, I covered Ukraine for the first half of the year, and then I decided as well to return. And he was a core part of the circle that was, you know, trying to keep sane and trying to uh, support each other in what is a very emotional and very scary, frankly, assignment. Yeah, I mean, I, I just so our listeners know, as I turned the topic of conversation to Evan, a massive grin came across your your face and you, you looked so happy to be talking about him. And obviously, he is in quite a predicament right now. He's not in the best circumstances, but he clearly is someone who is hugely popular and well-liked by the people who know him, such that it brings a smile to your face just to talk about your friend. I mean, how do you think he's handling what he's going through right now? Well, Evan is really strong. He's very tough. I He has a very strong sense of humor. And I know that he's doing a lot of reading. And, you know, what we've been hearing from his lawyer and from the people that have been to meet him, they've said that he's staying very strong. You know, I work for the New York Times. Evan works for the Wall Street Journal. We should be, you know, these are the two very competitive newspapers. Um, but Evan is a colleague and a friend. And, you know, he's been in Moscow since 2017. I came only in 2021. And he always found time to sort of give me advice or talk about my ideas or encourage me in what I wanted to do. And I, I found that that incredible. But also, you know, we're reporting on a country that considers us enemies and uh, or considers us at least um, to come from it, what Russia designated an unfriendly country. I wouldn't say that, that that's how people we interact with treat us. But, um, you know, it's a very tense and, and pressure-filled environment. And Evan was always ready with a joke, with, um, I don't know, funny stories over dinner, you know, we had a, a very a small and devoted community of people who who kind of looked after each other. And that was really, really important. And just because, you know, a lot of people who'll be following Evan's story who don't work in the news industry, tell us a bit about the workload of a newspaper journalist covering the Russia beat right now. There's not really any time to moonlight as a spy, frankly. I mean, what is your take on these charges, which I, I don't think it's compromising any editorial objectivity to say they're clearly spurious. 
it's frankly just absurd because we are under an incredible amount of surveillance. We are followed. They can surveil us in whatever way they want, when, whether we're out, whether, when, as soon as we leave Moscow. You do feel that you're constantly being watched. So the fact that they could follow Evan for so long and as much as they did, and all of us, you know, and frankly Nazi that we're just doing our work all the time, uh, I find it quite absurd, you know. And if there was really a... Right now in Moscow, foreign correspondents have their visas renewed only every three months. So there's always an opportunity, if that was something that they suspected, to simply, you know, not return, not just not extend the visa. So it's it's clear in your mind that the Russians know that Evan's not a spy. He's not been doing any espionage. We are just going to say that he he is, so that we can use him to our advantage for other purposes. I can only presume. I have no direct knowledge, but you know, if they've gotten into his phone, they'll be sure to see all the emails with his editors discussing his stories, his assignments. You know, and and he has a very solid track record of, of excellent journalism since he arrived in Moscow. So I think there's there's frankly no question, and I think you know the Russian uh, propaganda machine has gone to overdrive trying to portray him in a different way, you know, to raise questions uh, about him. But it looks pathetic. What can you tell us about the mood in Russia at the moment? I mean, on a surface level, there is not there is not widespread popular dissent against the war. It is becoming increasingly difficult and risky for Russians to voice any kind of negative opinion over the strategy, over the war and over how Putin has handled the whole situation. But, you know, one thing we do know is we know that there have been so many Russians who've left. There's been an exodus of people. There have been a ton of men who are trying to dodge the draft. There have been, you know, a lot of videos captured of people angry in a lot of Russian towns where the conscription officers are trying to recruit people for the war. There are little bits eking out here and there. What can you tell us about the view from inside Russia? I think a lot of things are are happening at the same time. Uh, With Evan, we would always talk about how incredible it was to sort of feel, for the first time, at least in my life, uh, like you were watching a society change before your eyes. You know, in some ways, it feels like people, because of this shrinking access to information and because of this increasingly harsh penalties for not towing the line, it seems that some people are increasingly starting to to support this and to feel hated by the West, to to buy into the belief that the Kremlin is trying to to stamp out that the West actually started this, that America was planning to invade. Uh, this is something I would hear quite often from Russians. On the other hand, I had many discussions, you know, in with hushed tones, whispered tones from people once they found out that I was not Russian, who said, okay, you know, please, you know, please know that we are, I'm ashamed of this. I don't support this. There's just, there's nothing that I can do. I'm not ready to sit in jail. This is why it's so important to be there. This is why I think nothing can make up for the everyday encounters you have with people. And I think that's why Evan really was committed to being in Russia. You know, he knew that mm, having a, an accreditation and a visa 
were were a unique opportunity when you know for most of most of the world cannot go there most journalists cannot can no longer get access to this country and it is important it's very important for the future of the world to to understand what's happening there but i do agree that um i think there is certainly much more frustration and concern than is publicly visible but some of that is there is a very significant portion of the population that is sad this is going on, would would probably not have chosen to start the war, don't necessarily feel a particular need to take Ukrainian territory, but still think that they should win now that it's going on. How much information do you think is reaching citizens about exactly what what is happening? I mean, you know, there's been no shortage of reports of atrocities, of absolutely unspeakable things being done to Ukrainian children, babies, pregnant women, elderly disabled people, atrocities being carried out in, you know, towns that are now becoming synonymous with allegations of war crimes in Ukraine. How much of that is filtering through? Well, I have one anecdote for you, which is that on the 24th of February, the anniversary of the outbreak of the war, I was walking around Red Square. There was a fun fair. Uh, It's a public holiday in Russia to commemorate uh, veterans. And it was beautiful carousels. Children were riding on carnival rides and parents were drinking, you know, mulled wine. And I did, I did approach to young men in their early to mid thirties. And I started to talk to them about the significance of the day and what they were thinking and tried to understand what they think about the war. And, you know, both of them said that if they were called up, they would fight. And I started to ask them about what media they consume and where they get their news. And, and, and I said, you know, wh- what do you think when you hear about Bucha, which, you know, as you know, is a, a Ukrainian town in the suburbs of Kiev that has become synonymous with Russian atrocities. And one of them turned to the other and said, what's Bucha? And the other one said, oh, that's the Ukrainian propaganda. Um, so, you know, he said, well, the you know, the West uses it one way, the Ukrainians use it their way. And, you know, but, but we don't believe that. So, you know, I don't know what's worse and I'm not knowing about it or um, refusing to believe it, you know. Someone who knows all too well how it feels to be an American journalist wrongly held on charges of espionage is Jason Rosian. Jason was the Tehran bureau chief for The Washington Post until summer 2014, when he was jailed for a year and a half after being found guilty of espionage in a closed-door trial in Iran. At the same time, Washington was negotiating with the regime on the nuclear deal, which was agreed and adopted in late 2015. A few months later, Resign was released from jail. On the same day, the US released more than a billion dollars in frozen Iranian accounts. I think in some ways, you know, I'm never that surprised anymore when when this happens. Um, It's been happening quite a bit, both journalists, but other Americans and citizens of allied countries being taken hostage in countries like China, like Russia, like Iran. So I'm always sort of waiting for the next case. I guess one of the first feelings that I had was that frustration of how it was being framed. I've written about this before in the context of non-journalists. When they're arrested, I've pushed back against other news organizations and my own 
when they've headlined pieces in that way. You know, American journalist charged with espionage in Russia. Look, you know, I've engaged in, in, in a lot of conversations with colleagues, with editors, with other reporters, and I'm an opinions columnist now. So I, I, I'm in a different uh, place where I can call these things out. And privately, when I've talked to, to friends and colleagues, um, the question is always, well, how would you want to report it, right? And what, what should the headline have been? Another American taken hostage in Russia is just as true as Putin alleges uh, espionage against American journalists, right? The pushback then is, well, we know that he's being charged with these crimes. We don't actually know that he's a hostage yet. Well, actually, he's not really being charged with any crimes. That's a front story, right? That's a cover story that we are perpetuating and really just kind of giving a head start to autocrats to you know, do their dirty work for them. Yeah. I mean, just for our listeners, the issue that you specifically discussed in your op-ed on the Washington Post was the way the media handled the news of Evans' arrest by putting in the headline in a lot of cases or featuring prominently the charge leveled by Moscow that he had committed espionage. And I think, you know, for a lot of people who don't work in a newsroom, there is a politics about headline writing that a lot of people aren't aware of. I mean, journalists often the reporters who write the articles are never usually the ones who write the headlines. They often get changed by many people. And certainly, Jason, I'm sure you know you as, as well as myself and many journalists will, will often have stories of taking umbrage at some headlines imposed on their pieces, such as the way that newsrooms work together. But the issue that you take is the sort of the lending of weight and and credence to what essentially is spurious charges by the Russians. Uh, I mean, Evan is a full-time correspondent for the Wall Street Journal. He has a body of work behind him. He has denied that the charges leveled against him. He's appealed his arrest with the prominence of of headline placement, as a lot of media outlets have done. Uh, You said in your article that the journalists doing so are, are essentially behaving as stenographers for Putin. We're doing his work for him. 100%. And, you know, it has a cascading effect, right? Um, because when when the, the headline in the newspaper, you know, reflects that line, then the next thing you know, talk radio is repeating the same headline. The cable news networks are are repeating this head, the same headline and you know one of the things with that you know more experienced editors uh when i confront them on this the response is and you know, in some cases very high profile um people with decades of experience the answer is well nobody actually believes that he's a spy right so well then why are you repeating the claim. If we don't believe that, and so what we explain very clearly that you know in the article that you know he, there's there's nothing supporting these claims. First of all, you and I both know that most people don't get past the headline, right? And if they do, they don't get to the end of the piece, right? So if at the top you're you know simply repeating the headline, then you're you're just literally just repeating back to people what Moscow is saying. 
ultimately, that's not journalism, right? That's not what we're here to do. We're not here to be neutral uh, repeaters of everything that people anywhere in the world uh, pronounce. You were held for 544 days, you know, almost a year and a half in Evan prison in Tehran, a notorious prison, also the prison where Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe was, was being held, but a prison where the Iranians also hold max security prisoners. They hold people accused of terrorism charges, serious hardened criminals. And you were there for your crime of being a journalist, as far as the Iranians are concerned, on a par with espionage. Evan is being held in the Lefortovo prison, which is an old sort of KGB Soviet Union era prison, which is now used by the FSB to hold political prisoners and and people who they put in maximum security facilities. What do you think it says about how these regimes treat journalists, treat people whose jobs are simply to report the truth with accuracy and reliability, that they put people like you and Evan in the same categories as enemies of the state, as terrorists, as hardened criminals. I think it says two things. One, you know, it, it goes to show how thin-skinned um, some of these authoritarian leaders are. Um, and oftentimes, more often than cases like Evan and, and mine, it's local journalists, domestic journalists who are being treated this way and put in prison on, you know, crimes of allegedly disrupting national security or, or terror crimes uh, in, in some countries. And really all it is, is they're guilty of speaking truth to power, of uncovering corruption, of um, exposing truths that the, the regimes in power don't want to see happen. And that's not just happening in you know hardened authoritarian states like Russia and Iran and China. It's also happening in you know countries that kind of used to be democratic, right? And so we have to really pay attention to that. I also think, though, that, you know, in a lot of ways, it's designed um, to outrage and astound uh, the rest of the world. And it works. Um, you know, the fact that a Wall Street Journal reporter who has been known as a very effective reporter telling very human stories nuanced stories from Russia, a place that we don't have a lot of insight into, is now being held in, you know, a former KGB prison. That says something to the world, you know, and it, it's designed to uh, to outrage not only you and me and everybody else in the news media, but to kind of get public opinion working towards trying to resolve it. I mean, you know, Russia has no intention of holding Evan forever. They want something. It's not something that we talk about very often when we talk about these issues. For Evan to come home in the way that the world is set up right now, without deterrence, you have to get the U.S. president to act. That's really interesting because I thought that you were, when you were talking about how this is this move has been designed to outrage the world. 
I figured you were setting up for for explaining that the Russians are wanting to make an example of Evan. And we've seen how BBC Russia has already been expelled from the country. A lot of journalists have been expelled from the country. A lot of Moscow-based English language correspondents are now reporting out of Riga or uh, other Baltic capitals and are no longer on the ground. But that's interesting that that actually what, what you're saying is that essentially the Russians know that this is wrong. They want everyone to be collectively outraged about it and for this story to fill the the news cycle and to be a part of the ongoing discussion and to stay in the discussion in order to get the Americans to do something about it and to essentially give them what they want. Yeah, both things are true. You know, the chilling uh, you know, impact that it has on all journalists is one part of it. It's a nice kind of consequence of it. And the outrage that holding an American hostage in the absence of any credible deterrence, why, how does that bother? Right? Like, it's not a problem for the world to be outraged if there's no credible action that can be taken against him when it's all said and done. And this is my main argument, right? That, you know, bad actors uh, people who don't believe in the rule of law are going to keep taking advantage of this uh, void of of any credible deterrence or, or punishment until there is a credible deterrence and punishment for this behavior. It's just a it's a it's a no lose situation for Russia. We've spoken briefly about how you were held for 544 days in Evan, and in the course of this discussion, we've talked a lot about all the different levers at work and the difficult balancing line that governments have to tread with these highly sensitive cases. A lot of this gets played out in the public eye. Obviously, a whole amount of it takes place behind closed doors. But essentially, we can follow a lot of the time the ups and downs of how these negotiations take place. That's not really the case for when the case is yours, is it? I mean, take us back to your time in Evan, how did you spend the days? How was it for you? How much did you know of what was going on behind the scenes to secure your release? Did you ever think that you would make it out past a certain point when you'd been there for months and months and months? How was it for you? You know, a year and a half is a long time. So it went you know, in a lot of different directions. In the first seven weeks, I was held in solitary confinement. And when I came out, the only times I came out were to be interrogated. My interrogators told me that interchangeably that I was on the verge of being released, that I was on the verge of being executed, and that I would spend, you know, the rest of my life in having prison. You know, that experience is designed to Um, really disconnect you from reality and it works. Uh, So I had no window into what was going on then. They told me that they had reported in Iran state media that my wife and I died in a car accident and that, you know, nobody was doing anything to, to follow up on, on my whereabouts. While I found that hard to believe, you know, Iran does have one of the highest road fatality rates in the world. So, you know, that seemed plausible, right? Um, as time dragged on, you know, my interrogators would change how they treated me. You know, it would kind of go up and down 
after I came out of solitary confinement, I had access to a television that had Iran's state television channels on. And, you know, I watched the news religiously. The nuclear negotiations were happening. There were a lot of uh, speeches by Obama that were carried live on Iran state television. There were press conferences that included, you know, Iran's president, Hassan Rouhani, and the foreign minister, Javad Zarif. Oftentimes they were asked about me. Members of Iran's parliament called for my execution on multiple occasions. And it took me some time to realize that anytime the Iranian statespeople were, you know, bringing up my name, it was because of some action that was happening in the free world on my behalf. And over time, I came to understand that hearing my name on television meant that I was still relevant. And as we got closer to the implementation of the, the nuclear deal, I, I had you know, a lot of hope that that would be the thing that got me out. I didn't have insight into any of the negotiations. I didn't know that they had been negotiating for me. That wasn't public knowledge. And when you know, that last couple of weeks, right before the, the, the JCPOA was implemented, um, I was on pins and needles because I knew that if I didn't get out then, I probably wouldn't get out. And I say that, uh, Siamak Namazi, who is another Iranian-American who was arrested while I was being detained, was not released as part of that deal. And he is still there uh, more than seven years later. Do you think that you were taken with the express intent of being used to raise the stakes optically and politically for the Geneva talks, for the the nuclear talks? Or do you think it was more a case of they took you and then decided how best to use your uh, detention to their advantage? I think that the people who took me, the the intelligence wing of uh, the Revolutionary Guard Corps, did not want to see the nuclear deal happen. The ideologues in the Revolutionary Guard Corps wanted to do whatever they could to undermine that. And arresting me and other people and, and other activities that, that they did during the, the time, and also after that, helped undermine it, right? But I don't think that they took me thinking, okay, we're going we're gonna to orchestrate you know, some kind of deal. Actually, I think what happened was that, you know, uh, Zarif and, and those in the executive branch of, of the government at the time kind of made a side agreement with their IRGC brethren to say, hey, look, you know, this is creating a big problem for us, but maybe there's a way that we can work together and get something of, of value. That's so interesting. So, so essentially what you're saying is there are factional rivalries in the Iranian power structure, and you just happened to be caught in the middle of all of that. Yeah, because I was an American citizen working for an you know, American news media organization at the height of the biggest engagement uh, between those two countries in 40 years. Do you think that is essentially the same situation we are looking at now with Evan Geshkovitz? Pretty close. Pretty close. I mean, the only difference... To me, there's two big differences. One that might work in his favor is that, that the U.S. and Russia have diplomatic relations and always have, right? 
American diplomats are still on the ground in Russia. Russian diplomats are still on the ground um, in the U.S. They can communicate with each other whenever they want. Um, so that could work in his favor. The thing that that was different was that there were people within inside the Iranian regime and the American government that wanted engagement in 2014 between our two countries. That and you know in Evans' case, the U.S. and and Russia are on opposite sides of uh, a really nasty war, right? And so I don't think that 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 dynamic is helpful to him, almost certainly not helpful to him. But otherwise, you know, the, the kind of, the, the way we got here uh, is pretty similar set of circumstances. Both, you know, journalists of, American journalists of the origin of the country that arrested us, right? Evan is looked at, I'm sure, by the Russian public as a Russian guy, right? That went to, that, that happened to be born in America. As I was looked at as an Iranian, happen to be born in the United States. And that was something that was always used against me. For regimes and countries that are hostile to the United States, like Russia and Iran, dual nationals can very often be seen as fair game. Some even regard emigres who go on to live and work in the West as traitors, enemy collaborators. It's a practice that was rife during the Cold War, when my One Decision co-host Sir Richard Dearlove was working at MI6. I think if you are an emigre, you go back to your family's country of origin, there is a tendency on the part of autocratic governments to regard you, you know, as one of their nationals, even when you are absolutely not. And I can think of parallels during the Cold War. I mean, I can remember when I was posted in Prague behind the Iron Curtain, there were some business people, British business people working inside Czechoslovakia, who were the children of emigres, who were subject to significant pressure um, by the then Czechoslovak secret police, really to be recruited as, as sources and agents. And, you know, when they refused, they almost certainly had to leave the country. And they were threatened with things like, you know, call up into the military because they were technically, you know, might be citizens of that country. Uh, I mean, there are all sorts of ways that this can be utilised. And, you know, I, I, it would it, it, be very interesting to know the extent to which um, Gershowitz personally had been pressurised by the Russian because you know he was would have been seen to them as Russian origin, and there's no question they do have a different attitude to people who they think are you know of originally of their culture. Let's put it like that. And the Chinese are the same in a way in, in relation to ethnic Chinese. The important thing to remember, as we've discussed, is that this is one detention out of many, and it's also one case making up part of a wider assault on the media, on journalism and journalists on the ground in Russia, there have been fewer and fewer Western journalists being able to report. We've seen so many Russian, indigenous Russian, independent news outlets like Medusa, like Novaya Gazeta, a lot of places really be unable to work. A lot of them have shuttered down. A lot of them have had to move overseas. Putin is essentially 
wanting to control the narrative inside of Russia. He's clearly, uh, by doing so, he is showing that he is clearly worried about the situation in Russia also coming to light and and receiving Western attention and, and wanting to control the narrative of how popular his war is uh, is going domestically, but also to try and stop the flow of information about what is happening in Ukraine back to the domestic Russian population. What are the effects of the removal of independent journalists from the ground in a place like Russia? I mean, I would expect that for those who work in intelligence, that journalistic reports do have some use. Journalists are able to work out in the open in many ways a lot more than intelligence professionals. Uh, Sometimes they get better access. BBC Monitoring, which was basically an an organisation which read and watched the state news, radios, websites in the indigenous languages of countries around the world and uh, created a kind of news stream from it. But there was the fact that those reports were pretty useful to GCHQ. And so it is difficult, particularly in terms of protecting the integrity of journalists' work, when a lot of regimes misconstrue the role that journalists play and the the and the the journalistic work that they do and misrepresenting it as espionage, which is what the Russians have done yeah, with Evan I mean, Gershkovitz. I think it's really... I know it's something that the general public probably doesn't understand sufficiently well. There should be clear blue water between news reporting and intelligence. And and the reason I say that is that essentially what intelligence deals in is classified government information or classified policy information which you know would be hidden or would be secret and would not as it were be accessible in the public domain obviously to 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 understand global events you know news reporting is an essential ingredient but it's stuff which is supposedly you know totally in the public domain it's not you know protected in any way but that distinction that we make in liberal democracies, which can be blurred, I agree, but there is a clear distinction, um, is not made in autocracies like Russia and China, where control of the news and control of the media, you know, is a central part of keeping control of the country. And I think the, the, the issue is further complicated by the fact that Russia and China use journalistic cover for some of their intelligence officers in the West. And this may not be well known. But MI6 never did that, did they, Richard? Absolutely not. And uh, Well, I should say I'm not going to comment, but in this case I'm going to say that I think we were very very careful. You know, look, everybody talks to journalists, but journalists are absolutely not spies, and they shouldn't be contaminated by espionage. And it's very, very important for their safety that they're not. The problem is that there are overlaps. I mean, you have very, very influential journalists who have phenomenal understanding, and maybe there are conferences in which people get together. Maybe the 
intelligence people are relatively anonymous there because they want to hear these people with these great cultural you know insights talk about a country but you know intelligence officers and espionage are dealing in basically stealing secrets i mean i'm put it very bluntly in order to try to bring out the difference but then you get into a situation like you know ukraine where obviously there's massive journalistic involvement in the war and then that you know is going to create some grayness in certain areas and when you have a crisis and a controversy in russia which is what you've got about the war in ukraine a journalist like you know the one that on this occasion that's been arrested you know it's probably obtaining insights which the russian state would rather cover up but the idea that he's involved in espionage is frankly completely ridiculous because he is absolutely not and the russians almost certainly know that he is absolutely not and of course there's a further dimension to this because you know we've just been through a situation where we've seen this uh, lady basketball player targeted by the russian security arrested and in exchange for somebody like victor boot now it may well be that the russians have have some plan and i wouldn't put it you know past being an explanation for what has happened that they they're thinking about some exchange it might be 10 russian officers sitting in a prisoner of war camp in ukraine for all we know we just don't know but somewhere behind this i bet you there is you know a russian master plan and if you arrest the prominent u.s journalist you immediately have got your trump card excuse the pun i don't mean trump card if you see what i mean i mean that in the real sense of trump card <laughs> that's such a loaded word now these days we need we need a new <laughs> we need a new word did the prisoner exchange between Brittany Griner and Victor Boot, do you think that didn't not, not set a precedent because prisoner exchanges have been done before, but did that perhaps send a signal to Moscow that detaining US citizens was a useful enterprise for a Vladimir Putin who is increasingly becoming on the back foot? Well, I think the answer to your question is it may have done. But I, I mean, I fear that once you start making an exchange, and the US government is under huge pressure to get Griner released, and okay, Boot had almost served out his sentence, so he was coming out anyway, and they probably calculated that they weren't losing many equities by releasing him, what, what, what was it, a year or 18 months early. But I, I mean, this is one of the dangers. If you if you do a deal, it possibly, it may well, I was going to say probably encourages in the minds of the people on the other side that you're going to be susceptible under sufficient pressure to another deal. And I think this is, you know, where where we're going i mean do you know do you pay terrorist ransom money i, I mean there are there are many obvious areas where this issue crops up and i mean we're in a period now of confrontation with russia we're fighting a proxy war 
with Russia. I think if you're a journalist, it's job to go there. But I think you have to understand when you go there that you are vulnerable. Do you think it is a winning strategy? Do you think it's successful? The fact that Putin is basically trying to outlaw independent journalism in Russia for the intention of both concealing whatever possible dissent, uh, any potential popular uprising, any rebellions against his mobilizations, also clamping down on the inflow of information from abroad of, of what is happening in Ukraine back to Russians that could potentially ferment dissent. Do you think by kicking out all the journalists, all the independent foreign and local journalists who don't tow the Kremlin narrative, that that'll work for Putin? It's a winning strategy until it fails. And all autocracies fail badly in the end. But, you know, eventually it will end badly for the people imposing these rules, because the truth eventually whatever that is, will out. And, you know, look how Stalin's life ended. You know, he had a stroke, fell off his couch onto the carpet, and because he was such a terrifying autocrat, no one would go near him for 36 hours. So he died in lonely agony, just as he should have done after the agony he had imposed on the Russian people. That's it for this week's episode of One Decision. We drop new episodes every Thursday. Like and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Drop us a line. Tell us your thoughts. What decisions have impacted you and where you live? You can write to us. Our email is onedecision at onedecisionpodcast.com. From me and the team, thank you for listening and see you next time.